Hello, strategists. Today, I wanted to start the podcast a little differently. I wanted to give a little longer intro to our guest, Chris Miles. And the reason I wanted to do this is because he has such a unique money mindset, laser focused on investment and passive income. Chris bills himself as the anti-financial advisor. And that doesn't mean he's against financial advising. In fact, Chris was a traditional financial planner for years, but he had a mindset shift, an epiphany, you might say, or aha moment, when he started to think about passive income and its importance to becoming financially independent. I had a great time talking with Chris, and I think you'll really value what he brings to the discussion today. So I want to put this up front if you want to get in touch with Chris, the best way to do that is at his webpage at moneyripples.com. That's M-O-N-E-Y-R-I-P-P-L-E-S.com. And now, here's the interview with Chris Miles. Welcome to Personal Financial Strategy, the podcast, a podcast wholly devoted to you and your money, bringing expertise to bear on how you earn, invest, and spend your hard-earned cash. I'm your host, Tony King. And today we welcome a special guest to the podcast, Mr. Chris Miles. Chris has a very rich background in personal finance. He's an author. He's the host of a podcast called The Chris Miles Money Show. He has spent many years serving clients as a classically trained financial planner and investment advisor. Now, Chris is the CEO of his own financial consulting firm, Money Ripples. Welcome to the Personal Financial Strategy Podcast, Chris Miles. Hey, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, Tony. Thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it. I know that our strategists is what we call our listeners. They're just going to get a ton of value from what you have to say. With that said, let's just dive right in. I don't know, strategists, if you heard it in my intro, but you might have, might have caught it when I explained that Chris has spent many years as a classically trained financial advisor planner and investment advisor. That statement is in the past tense and something has changed along the way for Chris, hasn't it? Oh, it sure has. Yep. (laughs) Would you please share how you came to separate yourself from the classically trained investment advisor you once were and began a new paradigm in investment advice? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I actually started in the industry not intending to become a financial advisor, right? I was actually wanting to become a business consultant but I figure if I'm going to do that, I should have real life business experience versus just the college book smarts. So uh, 2001, I actually dropped out of college with one class to go for my bachelor's in sociology. Um, funny enough, I triple minor in psychology, Japanese and ballroom dancing. And, uh, oh my. <laughs> yeah. So kind of a renaissance man of sorts, right? Yeah. Um, so I actually yeah, went into financial advising just to have that experience, you know, because it was the first thing that came up. I didn't know at the time they would take anybody with a heartbeat you know, that could pass a test with a 70%. Um, I thought you had to be a financial genius. So I was trying to impress them. I was dressing up really nicely and everything else. And they're like, yeah, great. Can you pass a test? Yeah. I, yeah, I'm pretty good at passing tests. Good. Go do it. So I did now. Now, granted, I didn't know anything about money at the time. Right. And that's the thing. That's a myth about financial advisors. You think that they're somehow smarter than the average bear. And really we weren't. Um, I was trained on really how to sell products, right? How to sell mutual funds and what are the different types of mutual funds and different investments out there. I mean, I was trained on that, but in the, in, at the end of the day, it doesn't train you to be rich, right? It just, it just trains right. you 
use the same old junk you've been doing the whole time. So anyways, uh, that was right after 9-11. I, I became a financial advisor. Flash forwarded to almost 2006, end of 2005. I'm, uh, I call up a friend to wish him happy, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And as I'm doing that, um, you know, I, I thought, okay, this guy went to do real estate investing. We'll see how he is now. He's probably broke. He'll come back begging for work with me again. The exact opposite happened. Uh, I, I call him up and he said, Chris, things are amazing. My dad has doubled his income as a professor at the local university. Man, we're doing awesome. And I said, come on, that's too good to be true, right? right. Especially as a financial advisor eyes, right? If you guys ever met with financial advisors, they don't like anything outside of mutual funds or insurances. Anything outside of that, annuities, that's bad. It's evil. You should diversify away from that stuff. You should basically not diversify by putting it all into paper assets inside what I sell, right? Right. So we got in this debate about what's better, stocks or mutual funds or well, stocks or real estate. And he stops me, he says, Chris, how many of your clients are financially free where they don't worry about money? I said, well, none. They all worry about money. Even if they're <laughs> retired, they still worry about running out of money. He said, right. well, great job, Chris. Way to not help people. Uh, how about this? How many of you guys as financial advisors are financially free, not off the commissions you're earning, but actually doing these mutual funds? And I said, well, none. I, I, mean, I know guys have been working in this industry for since the late 70s. And no, they aren't retired either. He said, there's your problem. I said, well, give me the answer if you're so smart. He's like, I'm not going to give you the answer. You just got to argue with me. I said, fine, like, give me something. Give me something to chew on here. And he said, all right, if you're serious, I don't think you are. But if you are, go get this Robert Kiyosaki book called Who Took My Money, which is a kind of like a sequel to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? Right. Um, to short, shorten the, the, this, give you the summary of the book, mutual funds are horrible. All right. So I read that book. And then, and then, of course, I started listening to this radio show on the AM Talk Radio with these two real estate investors that were local. And, and I started listening to it. After a couple of months, I realized, wait a minute, I'm teaching this stuff that doesn't work. Why am I still doing this? And I had to decide between my pocketbook and, and the advice that was given. And I finally just said, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm done. I will never teach about money again. I will just go to the local university, teach ballroom dancing on the side and be a mortgage broker. Right. Okay. And so that was what I spent part of 2006 doing. But still, I wanted to know how they, how they did what they did. Some of these guys were in their 20s and 30s, and they were financially free. They were millionaires. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I started to learn from these guys. And long story short, I was able to become financially independent by the summer of 2006, just a matter of months later. Now, granted, I only needed $3,500 a month to become financially independent. But still, it blew my mind. It was so easy when I thought I have to scrimp and save and be cheap, really until I was 40 or so. Um, and you know, save up $2 million in mutual funds to then live on 3%, right? Because you're not supposed right. to pull out more than 4%. Um, by the way, the Wall, Wall Street Journal just came out and said 4% rule eh, doesn't work. Too high of a number because inflation's up, interest rates have been down, returns have been down in those funds. Therefore, people are running out of money faster, right? So, uh -huh. so for that reason alone, and, I, and by the way, we were questioning that rule even 15, 20 years ago. We were saying, is 4% too much? Is that, especially if they retire early, is that too much? Well, now Wall Street Journal is saying 3%. And I'm th I think that's kind of aggressive. I think 2 to 3% is more that number. Yeah. And think about it. I mean, to try to save up $2 million to live on maybe 3%, that's 60,000 a year before you pay taxes. It's not something to brag about anymore. I mean, to me back right. then, 60,000 a year felt like a lot of money, but you know, 20 years later, it doesn't feel like that anymore. And so, that's right. Um, but then all of a sudden now I was making 4,000, 5,000 a month passively. 
I thought, wait a minute, I'm 28 years old. I don't have to work now. What, what am I going to do with my life? And, and that's why I kind of came out of retirement to teach people. Um, you, you probably saw that I retired twice. That's because the yes. recession kicked my butt. I had to go and do it again. Uh, this time around, I was much wiser. I was able to retire for the second time end of 2016, this time with over five figures a month of passive income. Fantastic. You, you might even call that an epiphany uh-huh. turning point. Absolutely. Yeah. So the switch essentially uh, is from traditional investment vehicles mindset mm-hmm. to a passive income cash flow mindset. Yes. Am I getting it correct? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that was the big aha, right? Because mm-hmm. now I'll tell you, like what I didn't tell my clients at the time is I was starting to doubt whether what I was doing was working, you know, because I like evidence. I like to know things worked. But when I would inherit clients, I had decades of advice, right? Maybe they've been working for a financial advisor for 20 years. The mm-hmm. advisor retired and I inherited their accounts. I started to see some, some commonalities where these people weren't financially free, right? So right. again, kind of seeing the evidence. And then, and then I'd start to look at what's the real rate of return in the stock market, not the average, right? Because the average and actual returns are not the same. That's I right. found out, I mean, even if you run the numbers right now, if you look at the S&P 500 30 years ago till today, it's less than eight and a half percent like real rate of return, average return, if you compound it in a calculator. Right. That's not 12%, like I was claiming back then, you know, and that's before fees come out, you know, your advisor's fees, that's before taxes and everything. Right. So when I started putting in real life numbers, right? And I remember I would put in like three or 4% inflation, which I think is still low for inflation, even in a normal year, not even like this year. But I was putting in three, 4% for inflation, 8% for the market returns, it was dismal that people weren't yeah. retiring, able to retire based on what they were trying to put away. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just lower inflation. So I lower it to 2% just to make it a little bit more positive or I'd try to push it up to maybe nine or 10% on the, on the returns. And then I show the numbers and give them more hope. But I knew deep down, I said, well, I'm probably over promising and under delivering if I'm not careful. So that's where the epiphany happened. And then, you know, and of course you're always taught, you know, stay in it for the long haul, right? Even the market goes down. Now you got to stay in it for a much longer haul, right? For it to come back up. Mm-hmm. High risk mm-hmm. creates high returns. That one was interesting because I, I, you know, when you look at definition of risk in the financial world, it's chance of loss. When did a 90% chance of losing become a 90% chance of winning? You know, <laughs> those numbers don't add up. Yeah. You know, they're teaching you gambling, not investing, you know? So right. all those things kind of ate at me a little bit. All the stuff that, you know, Dave Ramsey would teach, but then, you know, he's taught this old stuff as well. He thinks that you still get a 12% return. He thinks that everything's still the same and it's not, you know, that's what I found out even as a financial advisor. And then, like you said, the key was when I started to switch to a cash flow mindset instead of a, you know, or passive income, right. Versus mm-hmm. just accumulation mindset, you know, that's big. Cause like I said, if you save up a million dollars, you happen to save up that much, guess what? 3% only gives you 30,000 a year. Right. You just retired a broke millionaire. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and that's before taxes. So maybe you walk away with 24, 25,000 a year if you're lucky. $2,000 a month from a million dollars. Yeah. Versus when I have my clients that they have a million dollars, like I had a, a guy who actually just he turned 60, he was retiring from Boeing, had a million bucks. He said, How do I deploy it? I said, Well, even if we give you a 10% rate of return, and there were some various options that had even higher returns than that. Um, I said, Even if we get you 10%, that's 100,000 a year. Versus, and that, and a lot of it's tax advantage where we pay less taxes on that money versus 30,000 a year, we have to pay full ordinary income tax. 
Right. That's a very different mindset. And, and that's where, that's what happened to me in 2006 is that all of a sudden the people that I would try to help that even there were retirees, including my own father who yeah. had money in his 401k, saved everything, paid off all his debt. He was the Dave Ramsey poster child, yet he was still financially broke, right? He still wasn't free. All of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, if he can turn his money into actual cash flow, real income, he could retire. He could actually quit his job. Right. And that, and that was big to me. That was a huge epiphany. So there's, there's a lot of different types of passive income instruments out there that you could invest in. Um, are there any that are right now kind of on your radar and, and say in the middle of your radar um, <laughs> that, that you really like? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really the same ones I liked even a few years ago. They don't really change when you look for like real stable investments, you know, when they're more predictable. Um, my favorite uh, is doing what I, what's referred to as turnkey real estate investing, right? So turnkey real estate investing, it's different than buying the property in your backyard, right? And in fact, if you live in the Western half of the United States, buying properties is probably not a good option for you because the truth is the Western half of the United States, the prices are high, but the rents are lower. So you don't get as good of a return. Um, whenever I get somebody on the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, and they say they have a rental property, my automatic response is sell it. Well, you haven't seen the numbers, Chris. I'm like, it doesn't matter. I already know. You can give me the numbers and I'm still going to say the same thing. They give me the numbers and I say, sell it. Now, for example, I have a guy that has a property with, with 600,000 of equity in it, but he only makes a profit of $200 a month. Wow. So that's less than a 1% <laughs> return on his equity. I yeah, said, if we yeah. move that 600,000 into new properties where even if it was just a 10% return and I go for, by the way, 12%, I like a 1% a month, which 600,000 would be 6,000 a month, but still even at 10%, that'd still be about $5,000 a month sure. versus 200 a month, right? A very different life. <laughs> yes. Um, so turnkey, and that's, and that's why I was telling him to move into is maybe we move this into some turnkey real estate investments where one, uh, you don't find the property. They already have properties that are there. You already know the numbers ahead of time right? You don't mm -hmm. renovate it. It's already pre-renovated. And so it's renovated by the time you close on it. Um, they, they, you know, it's totally rent ready. They even find the renters for you because they'll even do the property management for you. So they, they, they help you, you know, you don't have to become a landlord, right? You're not dealing with tenants, toilets, and trash only unless there's, unless there's big decisions to be made, but they're handling everything. You just have to get financed, you know, or have to buy the property. That's your job, but everything else, you're just collecting mailbox money. So that's that one of my favorites. Great. Yeah. When you, when you refer to mailbox money, um, I'm, I'm assuming you're, you really like real estate and you like rents uh, mm -hmm. as a cash flow instrument from real estate because rents do not count towards your gross taxable income. That's right. So that's, that's right. A, you can actually live off that money. You can, you know, like I, I always, my wife and I always joke that we, we have all this equity in our home here in mm -hmm. Arizona. And uh, I always smile at her and say, oh, yeah, but we can't eat it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> but if you're renting property, if you own property and rent it, that sets up such a nice passive uh, oh, absolutely. income flow for it, for people. So absolutely. that's still your number one. And it has been for some time. It has been for some time. I mean, uh, I mean, give you an example. I mean, we're building a property out in Missouri right now, you know, two properties, actually new construction. Um, again, when I say we're building it, I haven't done anything with the designs. I haven't done anything with it. Right. I just went, that looks good because you know, the down payment's about $62,000, but 
but the cash flow is over 700 bucks a month. That's net profit. That's, that's after, like you were talking about, right? After you're paying right. your mortgage payment, which you don't pay taxes on, right? right. Um, that's after paying the property management fees, taxes, insurance, and everything. We still profit about $700 a month per property. So again, like, you know, we're coming out of pocket, maybe 70,000, but the profit is about $700 a month. So that's money that we can bring on. The cool thing is because it's real estate and real estate, the, the structure depreciates, right? Just like a car. Right. Uh, right. It's not, it's not, that's the thing that people understand. It's the land that appreciates, not the structure, right? And granted the cost of materials might appreciate, but it's generally the land that appreciates that it's sitting on, not the structure. Right. So we get to depreciate that off our taxes Meaning we pay no taxes on that $700 a month, right? Yeah, so we have to fantastic. keep that free and clear. That, I mean, if you compare that to an IRA, after you pay taxes, you would have to make at least 15 to 20% in IRA to equal what I make with 12%. That doesn't include any appreciation. That doesn't include uh, the fact that they're paying down my mortgage for me, right? Because that's right. as part of that not profit number. Mm -hmm. and so even, even without you know any appreciation in the market, I generally will make at least a 15% return on my money. You know, that's, that's huge. Um, at least usually it's 15 to 20% or more. Um, I bought a property in Memphis three and a half years ago, the total return with the equity appreciation, which has been nice, um, has been about 300% in the last three and a half years. Wow. You know, I guarantee there's no financial advisor will say, yeah, I'll make you 300% in three and a half years. <laughs> it's when you think about the comparison and, and I have less risk, I have a real asset versus something on this paper that's zeros and ones, right? With right. a stock that really has no tangible value. It's all based on emotions, right? right. You think about it, like I have real assets. I have real income. And yeah, things can happen. There's, there's, a way, there's months where it might be a little extra cost coming out because you know either there's maintenance issues, there could be some vacancy issues, right? All those things could happen. Mm -hmm. um, but again, with the right property manager and the right upkeep and everything else, you minimize those risks too. Sure. And so- that's, that's the kind of thing I look at. So I love turnkey investing, but that's not all I do. Um, I'll, I'll even invest if I don't want to deal with, you know, buying the, a property, I might just throw money at things, right? Like, for example, there's things like syndications, you know, where you pull your money with other people, you pull your money together to buy a big project. It could be an apartment building, right? It could be an apartment building in Alabama or something like that, where you guys, you know, take a few million dollars to combine together, you get a percentage ownership in that. And then you get the, the net profits that come from that. You don't deal with any of the headaches or any of the issues. You have no clue what's going on. You just mm -hmm. know that you get paid. Um, usually mm -hmm. on a quarterly basis is pretty typical. And they, I mean, they all have varying degrees of different ways to pay out. Some are all growth focused. Um, others might pay what's called a preferred rate of return, which means that they're going to say, hey, the bottom baseline, I'm going to pay you is 8% a year, 2% a quarter or 10% a year, right? Um, every once in a while, I see someone at 12% a year. I'm like, well, that's great. There's my 1% a month thing again. You know, um, I love that. Um, I've even done things. So we actually just recently invested in mineral rights, you know, in, in land that gets you know drilled for oil. You know, we don't really? do it. The company we do with doesn't do any of the drilling, but they lease the land to like ExxonMobil and those companies. Right. I see. And so we can make 10, 15 plus percent a year in that, you know, um, I actually have done things with um, partnerships where I have guys that are, they're taking my money. They took a hundred grand of my money and they're investing it and flipping it buying raw land. And in fact, they're actually based out of Arizona, funny enough. Is, they're out of Scottsdale. Right? Okay. And, uh, and, and, and already in the last two months, if they just did no other money, they didn't turn my money over anymore, they would already make a 70% rate of return. So that 100 already became 170 in, in just from a few months work. You know, So again, not guaranteed, right? But right. 
you start to realize there's so many options out there. I mean, I have a client that actually tomorrow, this week, sometime this week, um, they actually have an, an open house for their new laundromat because they decided to do a franchise. They, they were all in real estate. They decided to diversify in their franchise. They're opening up this kind of cutting, you know, cutting edge, you know, state of the art technology laundromat right now. And we're launching that this week and excited to get that going. I mean, there's so many things you could do outside of these, these high risk, mediocre returning mutual funds that are out there that really just, they seem like a joke when you start to consider the other alternatives that are out there. Yeah. Have you ever met a quote unquote retirement planner that thinks the way you do? Not, no, not really. No, I've met people that do investing like I do. Right. But Mm -hmm. nobody that actually helps hold somebody's hand to really like say, how do I actually get this to work? Right. How do I make this work for us? Um, most people, I mean, if, if they're in my position and I mean, like, I don't have to work, right. I'm, I'm financially independent regardless, mm-hmm. but uh, the thing is the reason why we do what we do is because we're fighting against what's going on with financial advising, right? Because mm-hmm. people are struggling. I mean, mm-hmm. how bad is it that I have, I have a client right now that had $5 million in mutual funds, right? Wow. 5 million. That's assuming the market doesn't tank because he loses 10%. He loses a half million dollars, right? Yeah. You know, 20% would be a million dollars he would lose, but he's got 5 million in the market. He went to his financial advisor and he said, Hey, my goal is 500,000 a year of passive income. Like I want to live free and happy. Right. Yeah. And the financial advisor said, well, good, keep going. And the next 12 years, you might have 15 million. So you can do that. <laughs> you know, if he triples his money, so think yeah. about this, $5 million and that's not enough to live the life of his dreams. Yeah. That's just wrong. You know, and yeah. that's, that's why we're trying to re- reverse this education, this brainwashing that's happened over decades from financial institutions telling you the only way to become financially retired, right, mm-hmm, is to mm-hmm. invest in mutual funds and buy those crappy 401ks and IRAs, the things that really I've already seen proven don't work, mm-hmm, right? But yet mm-hmm. that is where the masses go. But remember, where are the masses investing? Are the masses financially free? And the answer is no, they're not. This right. is why we got to get you to do things that the masses aren't doing. Even though there's still millions of us doing this and have proven it to work, still, you need to make sure you're, you're doing it with the right amount of guidance and, and doing the right direction so that you're getting there as quickly and safely as you can. Right. Okay, I've, I've got a question because I, I think I hear people listening to us asking this question because... Well, and it might it might be a little bit framed in my own environment. I mean, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, where yeah. the real estate market has increased 25% in the last year. Yeah. And everybody is walking on eggshells, going, okay, when is this thing gonna this bubble gonna burst? Mm-hmm. And so here comes Chris telling me I need to put my money in in uh real estate. And I'm already a little nervous about real uh-huh. estate right now. What are your thoughts around the bubble or real estate long-term? Yeah, you know, that's the thing about real estate that I've learned over time. I mean, even if you don't invest in the traditional real estate, there's even things like self-storage units you can invest in, right? If we go into a bad recession like last time, hey, self-storage was great because people had to downsize and where they put their junk. They had to put yeah. in self-storage, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many ways to invest. But but the thing I try to tell people is, is don't think about what you see in your narrow little backyard. Right. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in a similar situation. I live in Utah. Exact same thing in Salt Lake City has been happening in Phoenix. Right. Like, oh, is that right? And we, yeah. And we've, and we've got a 2.7% unemployment rate, 2.9. It's something ridiculously low. We're like, 
the last, really the last 12 years, we've been the lowest unemployment rate along with like North Dakota, right? Mm-hmm. So super low unemployment. It's like not, it's just going through the roof, right? Even the prices are going through the roof, but I don't buy here. I don't buy in those right. markets. I don't buy where there's hype, you know, and I've heard a lot of hype in Phoenix, right? It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's no pun when we say it's a hot market, you know, That's it's, right. uh, it's very, it's very hot. And, uh, and so we don't look at those markets. We look at the boring markets, right? That's why I'm looking like in Alabama or Memphis, Tennessee, or it could be Indian, Indianapolis. It could be Pennsylvania. It could be Missouri, like Independence, Missouri, you know, just South of Kansas city area, right around there. Right. Oklahoma right. city is another great place. I mean, there's so many pockets and areas where there's still growth, but you're not banking on huge appreciation. We really want to focus on cash flow, And that's right. what's important is that even if my properties lose value, well, it doesn't matter as long as I'm still getting paid rent, right? Right, right. And, and in fact, if things start to tank and lose value, or if we're going to a massive recession, like what happened before, we had this massive recession where prices dropped. Remember, a lot of people downsized and started renting. What does that do to rent prices? Drives them up, right? So, mm-hmm. so if you think about it, like there's, you're right. Like you could take some big gambles and risks. You know, when people bank on appreciation, that's the mistake I made in the last recession that I learned from, right? Okay. When you, try to, when you try to really gamble on prices going up, you will lose. You know, at some point you will you will be wrong. Even though, again, the last six recessions, only this is the only once that house prices dropped, right? That was only this last recession. The previous five, house prices stayed the same and went up. But again, you don't want to bank on just hoping that prices go up. You want to make sure you're getting daily in and day out, month in and month out, getting paid. That's what's really important. Great. Well, let me let me just pull out a couple things to make sure that we we takeaways that we can come from this conversation. The first one I heard, Chris, was just the kind of devastating effect that inflation can have on traditional investments, and that most financial advisors do not talk about Mm -hmm. the effect of inflation when they're talking about um, traditional investment vehicles held for a very long time. You almost have to talk about inflation, don't you? When you add the time element and absolutely. And when you were a classically trained investment advisor, did you talk about inflation? Yeah. You know, like I mentioned, like you remember I had to adjust the numbers a little bit, like instead of showing three or 4%, I would show two. You know, yeah, and even that was good for a financial advisor because most wouldn't show any inflation. They would just right. say, look at the money you have. Isn't that amazing? You're a millionaire. Like yeah. I, I remember, uh, it's funny because I found a Dave Ramsey tweet recently where uh, Dave Ramsey said, if you just save $100 a month for 40 years at 12%, you'll have $1.176 million. Everybody should retire a millionaire. What he didn't factor in, of course, he was not factoring in inflation because no. the real rates of inflation, if you want to look, uh, shadowstats.com is a great place to look okay. for the real rates of inflation before they, the government and every president, Republican, Democrat alike, have inf- influenced and, and manipulated the numbers of inflation to be lower and lower so that they pay less in Social Security because they have that cost of living r- adjustment that they do every year. Well, if they can show uh-huh. less inflation, it allows your social security to stretch out longer so they don't go bankrupt as quickly, right? Uh-huh. So that's one reason why even since, really since President Carter, they have been manipulating the inflation rate, you know? So shadowstats.com says, hey, pre-Carter era or pre-even 1992 when, when uh, you know, between Bush and Clinton, right? That era, they, mm-hmm. they adjusted it big time again. If you start to factor those things in, inflation is much, much higher. 
In fact, it's pretty much about what the stock market's been averaging is closer to what it's been. So, so tread and water. Tread and water. And that's, and that's something you just cannot show because that means if you're going to live on 3%, right? Once again, mm-hmm. you got to have 33 times what you want to live on per year. Right. So if you want a hundred thousand a year, you got to have 3.3 million in today's dollars. So that means you got to somehow magically save 3.3 million so you can live a hundred thousand a year lifestyle. Right. And, right. and hope that it keeps up with inflation. And that's not including the taxes, which now probably cripples it to where you're now losing to inflation as a result. Yeah. It's it, it, that, that you're right. That time that S is really of the essence because we can't control inflation. And I would say inflation doubles about every 10 to 12 years, depending on the era. But that's the real rate of inflation. You know, that's why I used to think 60,000 a year was amazing. I thought you'd be living high, the, the high life back in 2001, 2002, when I made that goal. That's not right. the case anymore, right? That's 60,000 right. is now just above poverty, you know? Right. Um, now, for most people, when I talk to them, they want at least 8,000 a month, 7,000 a month of passive income. And in many mm-hmm. cases, it's 10,000 to 30,000 a month is what they want to mm-hmm. at least know that they, they're not just paying the bills. They actually have some freedom to go visit grandkids, right? Right. So again, we got to, if the faster we can hit, we can shorten those timelines, then there's less of inflation risk. If we can, you know, if I can get somebody to be financially independent in five years versus 50 years, that's a much easier thing to plan for. And that's, and that's why we do more of what I call anti-financial planning, right? It's anti-financial advising because we're saying, go away from the traditional stuff, go away from the stock market. Let's do things that actually generate passive income now. Uh, and by the way, one way to do this, to speed it up, and I know you do this professionally, is how do we actually analyze the numbers? How do we make sure that our monthly outgo is not, we're not just leaking money, right? right. Like I, I just talked to a dentist today that her goal was 120,000 a year, which is low for a dentist. Usually it's 20 yeah. to 30,000 a month. She only wanted a 10,000 a month. I looked at some of her numbers. She was $70,000 away from paying off her mortgage. But the mortgage, now it's California, it was $3,000 a month. I said, well, that means your mortgage payment is actually $2,000 a month. You still have to pay the $1,000 even when it's paid off. Right. Well, I told her, I was like, if we refinance this to a HELOC, guess what? We can actually get your payment from $2,000 a month down to $170 a month. Because we found a credit union there that has a 2.49% interest rate on a HELOC. Wow. I said, we get this down to 2.49, your payment's about $175 a month. You free up over $1,800 a month. So that's over 20,000 a year. Your 120,000 goal now is only 100,000 a year goal. Right. And then, and then she said, oh yeah, by the way, like I was going to ask you about medical insurance because they're quoting me right now between 3,000 and 4,000 a month with our group plan. And again, it's California, right? Right. And I said, I guarantee we can get it below 1,000 a month. Like here's a guy I talked to, you know, get the health insurance premiums down. That's another 2,000 a month. She was again, calculating that in her head. I said, well, now- your income, your income need is about 75,000 a year. Right? right. And so when you factor all that together, it's like, well, gee, all we need is about $800,000 to do that. And she had $3 million. Wow. <laughs> I was like, we can actually get you financially independent this mm-hmm. year right now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. with, with much, much less than you thought it would be because we stopped the money leaks and we get the passive income working for you on the money that we do have. And, and if she wanted to, she could pay off her house if she wanted to. I mean, but that's an option, right? It's, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not of, I have to pay this off to hope for some financial freedom. It's, hey, we could, we may not. It just depends on what we feel is the best use of the money. Right, right. What, uh, another thing I find interesting, Chris, is it's, it's not a secret, but I, I'm just amazed 
in this industry, well, uh, just say in the space of personal financial planning, mm-hmm. how much space traditional investments still occupy? As we just discussed, that you know these investments, most of them, uh, mutual funds, index funds, things like that, they've been around for 30, 40, 50 years. I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. a long time since I can long remember time. anyway. Yeah, and um, and and they haven't changed much mm-hmm. at all. It, it seems like the future on those investments are so very predictable Mm -hmm. that the financial community would talk more about other avenues of investment besides, you know, just not sticking with in the, in that same lane that they've always been in for forever. It's just amazes me. I don't, I don't know. I, well, they don't get paid for it. You know, that's, that's really what it comes down to is what fills your pocketbook. You know, for me to tell somebody to go buy a real estate property doesn't pay me, right? Yeah. It's, it doesn't pay me at all. Like, but to tell somebody, and, and this is what happened. That's that same woman that had $3 million. By the way, she's already in the last six months been deploying this into other investments, you know, even into diversified real estate funds in various different parts, you know, so she's not just in one project, she's in various funds. She's got $3 million already deployed. Her financial advisor was livid every time she pulled out money. Is that why? Right? Yeah, because his commission if, went if, down. Yeah, I mean, if if she was paying him one percent, which is not too uncommon in the financial world, right? right. Now, one percent to put her in mutual funds that he did nothing for, right? Just to basically be a be a salesperson for her, he's getting paid on that three million thirty thousand a year. Yeah, but she's pretty, not getting that thirty thousand a year, is she? Pretty sweet you know? deal. <laughs> it's a great deal. So when yeah. she pulls out three million, get naturally, what's going to be his response? He's going to say, "Hey." uh, I don't agree with this. In fact, I think that's a very poor thing to do. You should be diversified, which is ironic mm. because they're not diversified when you put your money in, into paper assets. You're in the same right. asset class. Bond right. stocks are all the same. Right. You know, but you, you should be diversified in what I can sell you is really what he's saying, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the problem is that there's a such there's literally billions and billions of dollars being paid out to advisors because they have assets under management. You take those assets away, they have zero incentive to tell you to put your money somewhere else, even if they know something's better. They don't want right. to do that. Right. That's, that's the thing I'm trying to undo right now. That's why I'm, I'm just on a mission to really a crusade to stop the madness, you know, to, to actually mm-hmm. to cause some of these financial advisors to go broke. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I want them to go broke. I want the industry to be so disrupted that maybe they'd have to think, maybe my role is not to be a product peddler of just selling people mutual funds. Maybe I should be more of an advisor. Oh, heaven forbid, you know, that they <laughs> yeah. actually advise people to become financially free, which is the whole reason you thought you were using them in the first place. Right. But the only people that are becoming financially independent are the guys that are earning commissions off the money you have under management, and those ones are retired. Um, yeah. As further proof, I actually met a guy in my neighborhood that uh, he's about mid 70s, and we were doing a retirement class for the neighborhood, right? And, okay. uh, and he came there, and it's funny because I'm retired. I did it, you know, twice by the time I was 39. He was retired too. He's an old guy. So of course people start asking him questions. Well, how'd you do it? When we started to peel back the onion layers a little bit, found out one, he had a pension from the military that helped. Yeah. (laughs) Two, he was getting paid renewals. He became an insurance agent. He was getting paid renewals from all the insurance products that he had sold over the years. So he was getting paid off of that. Okay. Passive income stream. Passive income stream. Or I would call that if it's business income, I like to call it residual income to separate them. Passive income is what your money makes for you. 
residuals, what business does for you. Sure. So, which I'm totally in favor of. I'm, I'm actually okay if he gets paid all this. Right. Um, the funny thing is his investments in the, in, you know, quote unquote investments in the mutual funds, he didn't need any of it. Oh, and he was getting social security too. So he already had three streams of income without his mutual fund investing. Right. What happened though, I remember March, 2020 happened, right? Right about then the market starts tanking. He was panicking. He was saying, oh, I didn't take my own advice when I was a financial advisor. I actually lost a lot of money. I had it all in stocks and ugh, it doesn't look good right now. He's yeah. like, but luckily I don't need the money. And that's when everybody found out like, wait, what do you mean you don't need it? Well, here's where I actually make my money. You know, ah. that's the thing. Financial advisors, he, he was a financial advisor. Like he was making money yeah. just like somebody in the military with a pension. Not everybody, not everybody's going to become a financial advisor, right? To get right. paid these renewals and things like that. Mm-hmm. We, we get paid however we get paid. And so it's, it's got to be done in a way. And, and if a financial advisor can't be financially free without that money, what makes you think that their advice is going to be any good? And they follow mm-hmm. advice of people have actually done it, not those I've never have. Well, Chris, excellent. I think those two points, the, uh, the effect of inflation on investments and the advantages, the cash flow advantages attached to real estate investments, and also the tax advantages creating real income for people. Those are two really valuable takeaways from today's conversation. But I don't want to let you go until you give us a little bit of a dance around the floor on your ballroom dancing experience. <laughs> well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to show it because, uh, you know, I charge money for my dancing. Plus that, that was so 20 years and 20 pounds ago. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I actually, it's funny. I, I never intended to become a, a ballroom dancer either, but uh, my freshman year of college, I remember uh, I, I had one credit to make up to become full-time. Because uh, I found out I had a math class, but because I took two semesters of calculus in high school, they counted it as college credit. So I was like, well, how do I become full-time? I just need a one-credit class. It could be a PE class. It could be whatever I want. Well, and this is back in the days you had to dial in to see oh, yeah. classes. Were, this is pre-internet, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I'm dialing in. And I remember hearing, you know, um, you know they, they used to post all of our cl- all the classes that were open still um, on the big computer paper, you know, the you know, type of computer yep. paper. Yep. You remember yep. that? Mm-hmm. So they posted up on the board and there's this girl on the other side of the wall that said to this guy, there's lots of girls in this class. And mm-hmm. I said, I don't know what class that is, but for an 18 year old hormonal boy, that is a class for me. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, it was a social dance class and, uh, and I was horrible. I stunk. Uh, girls even avoided dancing with me in class. They try to skip <laughs> line. Um, ego but, bruise. Yeah. I mean, definitely not good for my ego, my little junior high sensitive ego. Right. So, yeah. uh, so anyways, you know, but later in that freshman year of college, you know, I kept doing it. I did another semester, um, actually got fourth place in the competition. I thought, wait, maybe I can do this. And so I kept doing it. I ended up eventually moving to Utah. There's the two best ballroom dance teams in the, in the world that are here in Utah. No um, kidding. I picked, I picked one of them and, uh, and that one that year had just won the world championship at Blackpool, England. So, uh, I ended up trying out, made the team. And so I was dancing on that team for two years on and off while I competed and was one of the nation's top amateur ballroom dancers. Wow. That's so interesting. Uh, and, and your entry into it seems so, um, just natural. Yeah. So boy, like, 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, what other class can you go and touch girls and not get slapped for it? You know, yeah, that's, there you go. You know, <laughs> that right there. Basically cool. hugging girls for a whole class period. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> doesn't get much cooler than that, nope. especially in college. So are you certified now? Are you a certified instructor? Nope, nope. Uh, I mean, I did actually teach at that university later on. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. go and just volunteer, but because uh, I dropped out without a bachelor's, they wouldn't let me come on as a teacher, right? Oh, I didn't have is a that bachelor's right? degree. And I thought, well, why would I finish my sociology degree? I make more money than anybody with a master's or a doctorate anyways. So <laughs> forget <Yeah>. it. So <laughs> I did a little bit of teaching on and off. You know, I did, I did some of that. I even did like dinner dance, like catered dinner and dance type of functions and things like that. But uh, for the most part, I actually have got out of the ballroom dance scene for the last 15 years. Uh, and now I actually run marathons. And, uh, oh, and do now you? I just, yeah, just in the last, last couple of months, ran two marathons, both were under three hours. So I was able to qualify for Boston, Chicago, New York, all those marathons, the big marathons wow. that are out there. So you're, my goal is to keep getting older and keep getting faster. <laughs> you're, ser- you're a serious athlete, man. Under three there. hours. Gosh, are you going to go? You going to go to Boston? Uh, Nope. I'm actually not going to Boston. I I turned that one down, but I am going to Chicago. So I'm going to Chicago marathon, New York at their, their window hasn't opened yet, but I'm going to try for New York as well. Okay, great. Well, Chris, thanks so much for being on today. Really appreciate your insights. And I I know the strategists do as well. And so we're going to say goodbye and strategists keep strategizing. Keep strategizing.